Well, out there, to whoever's listening, this is Pastor Tim Dooner of Valley Forge Presbyterian Church, and I welcome you to this fifth episode of a winter 2020 series called 2020 Vision. In this series, we're considering different teachings of Jesus from his Sermon on the Mount, and we're asking ourselves if we are seeing Jesus clearly with 2020 Vision. This uh, reflection's entitled, Love your neighbor and your enemy. I invite you to enjoy and to become centered by a time of quiet and stillness as we prepare to think about this together. So what I share for your consideration and imagination in this episode is in response to another part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as recorded by Matthew in his Gospel. Matthew writes, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are grateful for how God uses this scripture to shape and inspire and call. So in this series of reflections, we're using the metaphor of 2020 vision. Uh, 2020 vision when the letters and the numbers and the shapes on that chart 20 feet away are crisp and there's no mistaking what we see. But there are a number of reasons why we may not have 2020 vision, why what we think we see is not actually what's there. So as we move into the year 2020, we're playing on the numbers by asking if we are those who seek to build our life around the framework of Christianity, if we are those who seek to model our beliefs, our actions, and our lives after the example of Jesus? Are we seeing that example of Jesus with clarity such that we can uh, build our lives on his example well and with integrity? So we're hearing from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we're asking if we can, if we're seeing him clearly, if we're understanding him clearly, and therefore, are we understanding what he says about ourselves and about others and about God clearly? Or have we been seeing something else that we thought was Jesus but actually isn't because of assumptions that we've made based on what others have told us or biases that we have that have made us to filter out the real truth of who he is and what he's saying? Or 
or are we seeing something else because we have a desire to see something else because we don't really want to see the truth? In this episode, we consider this teaching and we ask, have we seen clearly? Are we seeing him clearly? Are we hearing him clearly? When he tells us that his way is the way of loving both neighbors and enemies. Like the last two episodes, this is a teaching where he starts with, you've heard it said, and after naming a commonly accepted understanding, follows it by directly challenging the status quo with a, but I say. You've heard it said that this is true, but I say that this is really what's true. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. First of all, let's get some definitions of these words uh, from the Greek in which it was written. Love is the Greek word agape, which means to seek the well-being of the other regardless of merit and without anything in return. It's, it's about intentionality. Uh, it's not about affinity. Hate is the word meseo, which is a Greek word that means to value less or to prioritize lower than another. Neighbor is the word plesion, which in the context of the Hebrew peoples meant a member of the Hebrew race or commonwealth. And enemy is the word ekthros, which meant someone who hates and opposes, which in Jesus' context could have been Romans, Samaritans, other nationalities. So to put this together, <clears throat> you've heard it said, Seek the well-being of your own people, the members of your own race or commonwealth. Assign yourselves a higher value, making each other priority one. You've heard it said, devalue and disregard those from other nations and races whose ways and beliefs are oppositional to yours. Treat them differently. Do not make them a priority. Do not seek their well-being unless they're able to do something for you of value in return so that it's a transaction of utility instead of love. You've heard it said, divide nations from nations. Seek your own interests rather than a global or a common good. So where did Jesus' contemporaries hear this said? You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Where did they hear this say? This is not as easy to answer as you've, pre you've previous you've heard it said. The love your neighbor is pretty straightforward. It's a reference to Hebrew law of Leviticus 19, uh, in which there were statutes demanding the Hebrew people to not hate a fellow countryman in your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is another sermon, or another episode entirely, but you know this is why Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan in response to the question of who is my neighbor was so provocative, because it puts a Samaritan, a non-Jew, a non-neighbor, in the place of neighbor. But what about the hate your enemy piece? Where does that come from? Despite uh, any assumptions we may have, that the Old Testament must have some kind of permission for the Israelites to devalue and deprioritize their enemies, there is no mandate or allowance of God to do so. The Hebrew Scriptures tell of God delivering them from their enemies, but, but not of God giving them permission to hate or to instigate, or to be aggressive, or to retaliate, to value their uh, enemy any less. Because their covenant identity 
who God made them to be as Israel, was a nation to bless all the nations of the, of the earth, not to hate them. There are, are laws in Exodus and Leviticus that demand of the Israelites, show kindness to enemies when they fall into difficulty. And we can read in the prophet Jeremiah that even when the Israelites were exiled and depressed, oppressed, God's command to them was to seek the well-being of the oppressive nations. So where did Jesus' contemporaries hear it said, hate your enemy? Some point to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the text of a different stream of Jewish thought other than the one that Jesus came out from. The Qumran community of the scrolls um, taught their people, you can read this in their scrolls, love all the sons of light and hate all the sons of darkness. Maybe that's where it came from. Others point to the popular rallying cries of Jewish zealots amidst the Roman occupation, the revolutionaries at the time of Jesus, who would incite revolution with their invitations and their cries to love their Hebrew neighbor but to hate the Romans. Maybe that's where they heard it. However, I wonder how many of them heard it said, hate your enemy, in the whispers of their own fears, or from the mouths of parents and loved ones around the table, or from the neighbors in the village streets. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. I wonder how many of us, if we're really honest, can name family, religious, political voices who have given us permission to hate our enemies, to devalue the black, the brown, the refugee, the immigrant, the woman, the poor, the Muslim, the queer, the Democrat, the Republican. But I say to you, says Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love, seek the well-being of those who oppose you regardless of merit, without the expectation of anything in return. Pray for those who persecute. Now, the word pray is not just the word for some sort of uh, conversation into the ether that happens only in the quiet of our hearts and minds. The word pray is a very active and physical word. It's a word for an exchange. More specifically, when Jesus talks about praying, when the, when the Greek New Testament writers talk about praying, it's, it's this discipline of exchanging our will and desires in a situation for God's will and desires in that situation. It's an exchange. So the word persecute is a, word, a verb that means to make, to run, or to flee, or to drive away. So what Jesus is saying, seek God's will, not your own, not your desires. Seek God's desires for those who are trying to drive you away or make you to flee. Maybe we can connect easily with what it feels like to have an enemy, to have someone whose beliefs or ambitions are opposed to mine. And so when Jesus says, love, love your enemy, maybe we get that. Maybe we get what it, what it means to seek the well-being of someone who has a belief or an ambition that's opposed to mine. But I know that I personally cannot easily 
connect with what it feels like to have someone trying to drive me away or make me flee. I know, I know that I have trouble connecting what it feels like to be persecuted. I, Tim Dooner, hit the celestial jackpot, and I was born a white male American. So I'm part of the group that has had the power historically, that historically has done all the driving away of others rather than the running for life. Jesus uh, invites me, invites you, if you're in this place of privilege, to not hide in that place of privilege, but to animate our empathy and to put ourselves in the shoes of those running and being driven away and to hear this teaching as if we were in those shoes. To pray for those who persecute, to exchange our desires, which may be violent or retaliatory, for God's desires of peace and well-being. So Jesus says that when we do this, when we love our enemies, when we seek the well-being of all others, when we seek God's will for all others, that we are children of God in heaven. If we are not seeing the world around us the way God sees it and living accordingly, in accordance with God's will and desires rather than our own, our lives are not spiritually drawing their livelihood from God. We are spiritually, metaphorically, children of the world. Uh, some other human being or human school of thought is animating and giving birth to our life, livelihood, but not God. Jesus says that God's will in this world is the well-being of all people. That uh, He says it this way, God makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rains upon the righteous and the unrighteous. In an agrarian society like Jesus' time, in that context, the presence of sufficient sun and rain were preeminent signs of God's love and favor, signs that God was seeking the well-being of the people, regardless of merit, without the expectation of anything in return. There is an integrity and a wholeness to God's love, God's commitment to seek the well-being of the inhabitants of this world. There is no fracture, no division into categories, no conditionality to God's love. This is the word perfect that we hear Jesus use. It means whole, complete, having fully grown and matured. So Jesus asks, if you only love those who love you, if you condition your love on being mutually beneficial or beneficial to you, how are you any more spiritually alive or full than the tax collectors? If you only greet, bid welcome, and wish well to your neighbors, your fellow Hebrews, are you really any different than others? No, because your, your love is not whole. It is not perfect. It is not fully matured. There are fractures and divisions and categories and conditions to your love. But Jesus says that when we are those who like God, as children of God, who derive our livelihood from God rather than the world, when we have a wholeness and integrity to our love, that is when we are known as the children of God. That our lives are full of what is good and true and real. Our attitudes toward and our responses to 
enemy, opposition, other races, those with different beliefs and ways of being, are to be the same as our attitudes to and our responses to family and friend within our own nation, race, political party, denomination, congregation, club, neighborhood, whatever. Someone looking from the outside should be unable to distinguish our neighbors from our enemies by the ways we are living with them in relationship. Our religion does not give us permission to hate, judge, condemn, devalue, ignore, dismiss, or call for the destruction of anyone. In a world of decreasing spirituality and religiosity, in a world of increasing isolationism, nationalism, fear, and war, the world needs Christianity desperately. If we're to truly be salt and light, to preserve and inspire the way to God's will of peace, we must not fall to the worldly temptation of an incomplete, immature, conditional, fractured love. There must be a wholeness and integrity to our love such that it includes all, even our enemies. For if there is not this wholeness and integrity to our love, then we are no different than the tax collectors and the spiritually blind of our own time. Our witness, our calls for love across party, national, race, and enemy lines, our calls for seeking the well-being of all people instead of individual or partisan or national gain, our calls for greeting and welcoming the other rather than turning them away. This is the way that God will bring about the days when nation will no longer lift sword against nation, when our swords will be beaten into plowshares, and the lion will not devour the lamb, but will lay beside the lamb in peace. The way of Jesus is the way, the truth, the life that God intends for us all. And so God help us all to see him clearly and by our Christ-likeness. Not our religiosity or our piety or our sense of superiority, but by our humble and loving Christ-likeness. God help us to be the children of God we were always meant to be for the sake of the world around us, for the sake of peace. Amen. And God bless you in your reflections and your prayers and in your living. Take care.